We begin our summer sermon series looking at the short, only three-chapter epistle known as Second Peter. And indeed, the series is called Everything We Need for a Balanced, Godly Life. I noticed there was only three grams of love in the uh, video. It's not really a whole lot of love, Nathan, because there are like 27 grams of mutual goodness. Anyways, anyways. So, that one died on the table. I apologize. I thought it was going to be funny. Thank you. Uh, usually, I have a routine when I fill in for Pastor David. I come up here early on Saturday morning, and I go over my notes, and I time myself because I haven't been doing this 40 years like he has. So, I can't just say, yeah, I think this one's going to be about 30 minutes. This one's going to be about 20. I have to time myself. So I did that yesterday, and then I came up here this morning, and I set my alarm for 5.30, but my alarm went off at 3.30 because my daughter is teething. And so from 3.30 until I actually got up at 5.30, she was talking and making noises. And so to me, it's more like it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon because I've been up for a really, really long time. So I'm ready to go now as we get started this morning looking at... 2 Peter chapter 1, the first four verses. I'm going to try to lay a foundation for where we're going to go all summer. If there's anything that I know about Peter, it's that you and I... I'm going to move this out of the way, if you don't mind. You and I identify with Peter more than anybody else, probably, of all the disciples, because Peter really makes the most mistakes, okay? He's the one that speaks up when he shouldn't. He thinks he knows the answers to questions, and he doesn't. He boldly proclaims that he will never shy away from Christ, and then he cowardly backs down during Jesus' crucifixion and trial. So we're a lot like Peter, you and I. And we're a lot like all of the New Testament writers in many ways because we're all flawed, sinful, fallen individuals. And yet, through the Holy Spirit... Divine inspiration comes on Peter, and he writes these two epistles to the churches. Just a little background, in 1 Peter, which we're not addressing this summer, Peter is writing to a church that is experiencing persecution from those outside. And so he's writing to encourage them and to help them know that at the end of the day, God is in control, he is sovereign, everything will be fine. When we come to 2 Peter... There are false teachers that are coming into the church trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing to this church to make sure that their knowledge of Jesus Christ is accurate and that they don't fall prey to heretical teachings. And so as we begin this morning, just the first four verses of chapter 1, you're going to see this theme of the knowledge of God everywhere. Because how do we refute false teaching? We have proper knowledge of Jesus. So if you'll begin with me, we'll be in verse 1 this morning. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. i got to stop right there. Simeon is not how Peter typically refers to himself. If you go look at 1 Peter, he calls himself Simon Peter. We don't ever recall Jesus calling him Simeon Peter. So this is just an aside. This is a, a unique way that Peter introduces himself here. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. In almost every New Testament epistle, minus two or three of them, you always find the phrase in the introduction, grace and peace. Paul does it in almost every one of his letters. John does it in his epistles, and Peter does it here. Grace and peace. And oftentimes when we begin studying epistles, we see those first three to five verses, and we just think, ah, that's introductory material. Let's move on to the meat of the message. But I want us to think for a second, when Peter, Paul, and John, when they write grace and peace, what are they actually talking about? Because, you know, when theologians break down the concept of grace, they divide it in two different directions. You have God's common grace on one side, and then you have God's special grace on the other. So God's common grace would be anything that you and I get that is just bestowed on all of humanity regardless of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we know this to be true. There are evil people in the world and good things happen to them. And we want to ask ourselves, why? This is God's common grace. We wake up every morning. We go to work. We come home. This is God's common grace. Medical advances that can cure diseases. Technological advances like the internet. Facebook, Instagram, and the always accurate Wikipedia is all a part of God's common grace that he bestows on all of us, regardless of whether or not we have faith in him. Every one of us in this room, whether you believe in Jesus Christ, you're searching for Jesus Christ, or you don't believe in him, you experience his common grace in your life every day. And then there's God's special grace sometimes called his particular grace. And this is the grace that is only given to those who accept faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, it's available to all of mankind, but only those who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and trust in him and what he did for us on the cross, only those of us who have done that receive God's special grace. So when Peter is writing here and he says grace... It's common grace and it's special grace. And then when he says peace, oftentimes we pray for peace in people's lives. We ask God to give us peace in specific situations. But you know, we pray for peace and we ask for peace. But when it comes to verbalizing what peace is, I don't know about you, but it's a difficult thing to define. And I don't think that's by accident, because if you go back and you look in Philippians chapter 4, this is what Paul says regarding peace. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. So even Paul is saying to us here, hey, peace is just beyond our comprehension. We can't really understand it. Now, we try to verbalize it, but really it's difficult to verbalize, but when we have experienced it, we know it to be true. 
The best way I can define peace is an inner stillness in our souls that reminds us daily that God is in control and that we are not. That is the peace of God that Peter and Paul and John talk about. After all, Jesus himself tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We are called to be peacemakers. There are three men I met when I was in Ghana a few weeks ago, and I want to show them to you up on the screen here. This is uh, Sahadu. Oh, is it where? There we go. Sahadu on the far left, Mustafa in the center, and Adu on the far right. Now, I'm going to be talking about my most, well, I said my most recent trip. I've only been once. The church has been 14 times, 13 or 14 times now uh, to Ghana, but I'm going to be talking about my trip to Africa a lot today. So if you don't like Africa, then you're really out of luck. Um, But Mustafa, Sahadu, and Adu, the three ministry leaders that we work with on the ground in Ghana. Sahadu has sacrificed relationships with family and friends to be followers of Christ. Mustafa comes from a royal family, and he could have had the right to ultimately be a king or a chief in his village. And he gave it up to be a follower of Christ. And then Adu, his wife, lives in Niger, and he is in Ghana proclaiming the gospel. So these men have already sacrificed much more to be followers of Christ than all of us in this room combined. Okay, let's just be honest. And the peace of God is evident in their life. As I said earlier, it's difficult to verbalize peace, but when you see it, you know it exists. And these three men have the peace of God. As we walked down the streets of Accra day after day, the only white people, pretty much, in Accra, it's pretty obvious that we're, number one, we're either tourists, or number two, we're missionaries. It didn't phase these guys. The peace of God is all over their lives. So God wants you to have his grace and his peace. And when Peter writes that to the congregation here, that is what he is talking about. Grace and peace is available to you and I through what Christ did for us on the cross. And as we keep moving on the passage, Peter starts to talk about God's divine power. And he says, experience God's divine power. The term godliness that we find here in 2 Peter is used only 15 times in the entire New Testament. And it's defined basically as correct religious belief and correct attitudes. So godliness is available to us because of God's divine nature. We know this to be true. Even Jesus himself modeled what it was like to walk in God's divine power. If you'll remember, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the desert being tempted by the devil for 40 days. Satan tempts him in three specific ways, and each time Jesus is tempted, he demonstrates to us what it is like to experience God's power. What does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. He meditates on the word of God, and he says, Satan, I know that you're trying to tempt me but I'm going to experience God's power by proclaiming his word to fight you off. So Jesus demonstrates, he models for us what it is like to walk in God's power. Even Jesus himself, the perfect human being that did nothing wrong, 
models for us what it is like to walk in the power of God. It is a divine power. This divine power is only available to us, and here's where we're going to start talking about knowledge, through the knowledge of God. Mentioned twice here in these four verses. I met a man also when I was in Ghana who ran a shop. His name was Ibrahim. He is a 28-year-old Muslim man, and he sells tea and teapots and men's clothing. Sim and Denise, actually not Denise. Well, yeah, she was with us one day. But Sim and I had the opportunity to go visit Ibrahim three times. And his, his face is going to pop up on the screen here. He's the one on the far right. That's Ibrahim. The ugly-looking dude in the white shirt is Sim. The really handsome guy in the red shirt is myself. And I can't remember the guy on the far left. But the guy on the far right is Ibrahim, okay? 28-year-old Muslim man. On our second visit, we sit down with him. We share the gospel with him using this bandana with all these different images that explain the Bible. And we start with creation. We work our way to the resurrection. He's very hospitable. He's listening. He's translating to his friends in another language so that they can hear. And then he asks me something at the end that the Holy Spirit has been working in my heart about. He goes, Taylor, have you ever read the Quran before? I said, no, Abraham, I haven't. And he goes, you see, a lot of people, Christians, will come and visit me. and They'll share the gospel with me. But none of them know what I believe. And I made a promise that day to Abraham that I would go home and that I would read the Quran and that the next time I came, we would dialogue about why I believe this book is the supreme authority in the Quran is full of errors. And so Abraham challenged me that day, and, and I'm challenging you to not be intellectually lazy in what you believe. To not just be satisfied with knowing a little bit about this book, and then going to foreign nations and just proclaiming the gospel and expecting people to automatically believe without doing your homework to identify with what they believe. So Abraham and the Holy Spirit that day reminded me, if I'm going to go share the gospel with people around the world, I better be able to identify with where they are. I think if we were to be honest with each other this morning, our knowledge of God's word could be better as Americans, as American Christians. You know, we live in a world where there is more access to knowledge in this country alone than anywhere else in the entire world. As I was preparing for this sermon, I could have purchased literally hundreds of commentaries on the book of Second Peter with a click of a button or by going to a library and checking them out. I delivered one Bible dictionary and one Bible handbook to Sahadu, who's one of our ministry partners in Ghana, and his eyes lit up. These were two books that sat on my shelf unused for years and he'll read them from cover to cover and he'll soak them up we cannot be intellectually lazy when it comes to our faith in Christ or other religions we have to be pursuing God with all of our mind I love what one commentator said he said oftentimes we talk about head knowledge that never touches the heart but there's also heart knowledge 
that never reconnects back to the head. And the biblical writers are asking for us to love God with all of our heart and all of our mind. As Peter keeps teaching, he tells his audience here to cling to the promises of God. Now, we could spend the rest of our time today looking at promises that we could claim in Scripture. We could look at prophecies that have all been fulfilled. But I do want to give you just a handful of ones that we can look at this morning. I'm not even going to ask you to turn there. I'm just going to fly through them. Prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled about Christ in the New Testament. Let's jump through these really, really quick. All right, here we go. Psalm 2.7 says that Jesus is the Son of God. This is fulfilled in Luke 132 and Luke 135. Genesis 17.7, he will be a descendant of Abraham. This is fulfilled in Galatians 3.16. Isaiah 7.14 says he will be born of a virgin. Fulfilled in Matthew 1 and Luke 2. He will be called Emmanuel is in Isaiah 7.14. Fulfilled in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Micah 5.2, he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is fulfilled in Matthew 2.1 and Luke 2.4. Zechariah 11.12, he will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. This is fulfilled in Matthew 26.15. This is just a snippet of prophecies in the Old Testament that we find fulfilled in Jesus' life. Not to mention just the general claims we can make in the New Testament. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Promises throughout the pages of Scripture available to you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. Do we claim them? Do we memorize them? Do we meditate on what they mean for us? Some people have taken this concept that Peter brings here about the divine nature. And they say, well, if we have access to God's divine nature, then we must not be able to sin anymore. We would know this to be a lie. Because Peter tells us very clearly that we are partakers of the divine nature which means there are certain aspects of God's nature that we have access to, but we by no means have all of God's divine nature. But the divine nature that we do have access to, we call God's Holy Spirit. And He comes and He lives inside of us once we ask Christ to come in our hearts. And He guides us. He leads us. He illuminates passages of Scripture. He brings references to mind when we need them. He gives us evidence of God's grace in our lives, of God's creation. He gives us assurance of salvation. These are just a few of the things that the Holy Spirit does to us when He comes and He lives inside of us. We are partakers of the divine nature. We don't have it all. But what we do have is enough to guide us the days of our life. And last, Peter tells us this morning that corruption is always near. The word here for corruption, the picture is decay, rotting, with the process of eventually disintegration happening. 
What an accurate picture of what sin does to you and I. It corrupts us. It rots us. It makes us smell. With ultimately it leading to our destruction. See, in the short term, sin looks really good, really enticing. It may even satisfy us for a time or two. But ultimately, it will lead to destruction. But the good news for you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, is that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, He gives us the power to overcome sin. Now, He doesn't give us the power to overcome our sin nature. That is never going away. But He gives us the power to overcome sin. I can't describe this any better than how Paul does in Romans chapter 8. It's going to be on the screen. And I hate to flip around on you guys, but I have to read Romans 8 to you this morning. Starting in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in you and I. He takes a previously decayed, rotten, smelly person and He makes us right in the eyes of God. You know, the Holy Spirit does miraculous things on a daily basis. Things that we're not even aware of half the time. My last story from Ghana. The very first day we're on the ground, we have a Bible study. And boys come in and they're smelly. They take showers. We feed them because they're out selling in the marketplaces. And they come in and we're going to have a Bible study. And we obviously don't speak their language. So they use a Bible called the Action Bible. Which is a Bible that is written in comic book form. And even though they don't understand what we're saying, obviously we have a translator, but the visuals help them identify with what we're trying to teach them. So we get there that morning, and Sahadu tells us that we're going to teach from the plagues in Egypt and then the crossing of the Red Sea. And so we open up our Bibles, and Christy says, All right, Taylor, start teaching. Which is fine, because these are stories that I've known since I was a small child, and, and I could handle it. But... The amazing thing was, I don't know if you've ever read the story of the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, but they don't take that long to describe. But the amazing thing about what the Spirit did that morning is we spent close to two hours discussing the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. And this is how it happened. I shared the story, and then the boys had questions. And then Christy would chime in. And then Sim would chime in. And Denise. And the Holy Spirit was standing above us, orchestrating these illustrations that came to our mind and passages of Scripture that I hadn't even thought of in weeks. And He was working this magnificent display of His power among us. And even though I've heard that story 
hundreds of times. In my 30 years of life, that was the most powerful Bible study I've ever been a part of. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He orchestrates things, stories, illustrations, scripture passages in our minds when we need them the most. Peter tells us corruption is always near. Peter tells us in his first epistle to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We, on a daily basis, are in a battle with the devil. He is pulling us away from God. Those of you that have children or grandchildren, no one has to teach their child how to be bad. What you do is discipline your child to show them how to do the right thing. It is our bent to be sinful, to drift away from God. I don't know of anyone that just drifts towards godliness. I know people that naturally drift away from godliness. And with the Holy Spirit inside of us, teaching us, we have access to this divine nature. We are partakers of the divine nature who is the Holy Spirit living in our lives and we must make a conscious effort to pursue Him. Because in our natural sinful state we drift away from the things of God. This morning I want to leave you with four action points. These are Short little phrases that you can write down, and this week you can take this passage in one through four, and you can say, in a nutshell, this is what Peter's talking about. And you can take these four and just practically live them out really quickly as we close. The four action points this morning. Walk in God's grace and live in His peace. Become aware of how God's common grace is happening in your life on a daily basis. Write down the ways that God's peace is evident in your life and meditate on those ways. Pursue knowledge of Christ and His Word above all else. How many of us have ever heard everything in moderation? When it comes to this book, that is a lie. There is no moderation in the Word of God. We are on this planet for a short, short time. Don't waste it on things that don't matter. Be sold out to this book. Stand firm in the promises found in Scripture. That's number three. Stand firm. Claim them. Learn them. Memorize them. Teach them to your children. Write them on the walls of your house. I know some people, when they build their houses, they write Scripture passages on the wood before the sheetrock goes up so that their house is surrounded in God's Word. Oh, that we would do that with every aspect of our life. And then last, be aware that we are involved in a spiritual battle every second of every day Peter, Paul, and Jesus don't talk about this battle to scare you or to just give you some lofty image. It is a reality. We are at war daily with the enemy. It's not a myth and it's not fiction. We pursue godliness for the purpose of conquering the enemy. This is just the first four verses of 2 Peter. Wait until we get deeper in to this study. God is going to do a mighty work 
as we study this short little epistle. If you will, will you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for your love. God, that we would pursue your word with everything that we have. Not just make it another thing that we do to make ourselves feel good. God, that we would prioritize our day around this book and around you. And forgive us when other things take priority. God, help us to reject the idea of everything in moderation when it comes to you and your word. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Teach us more about your word. Teach us more about you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.